Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire. And this week on the podcast, I have a very special guest, somebody I've been trying to pin down for a while, Dan Halligan from Kayenta Games. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm doing well. How are you? I am very happy to have you on. You are the designer of a game I very much like. You could say I'm even a little obsessed with it. Obsession! Do you want to tell us a little bit about that game? Sure. I mean, I uh, played games going way back when into the 70s to date myself a little bit. I played military games and Dungeons and Dragons and a lot of games that extended over a long period of time. You know, you would uh, set something up on a table and pray that your mother didn't take it down and, and destroy like three weeks of labor. And so I was into games and then moved on with my career, got married, kids. I had a friend who in 2012, 2013 was trying to explain the concept of a modern tabletop board game. And I just sort of waved him away. One, because he was a big D&D player still in his 40s. He wanted me to play. I just didn't have time for that. I, I had a pretty active career in in the medical business. And he kept at me and finally just uh, sort of shut him up. I said, you know, Christmas is coming up. What do you want me to put under the tree? Give me a couple titles. And in 2013, he gave me Seven Wonders and Dominion. And and little did I have an understanding of what I was putting under the tree because I said, okay, I get those. I put them under the tree. Well, we wore my family. So I have uh, my wife and three kids. Um, at the time, they were teenagers, young teenagers. We wore those things out over that holiday uh, vacation. And, you know, as is typical with our hobby, uh, I then out, went out and overbought as many games as, <laughs> as I could get my hands on because I couldn't believe that what I had enjoyed as a, as a younger person was being distilled down into a creative two-hour experience on the table, made it very practicable, practicable and, and accessible and more importantly, what struck me was that my kids, and so as young teenagers with electronics, I was a typical dad, put down your phone, don't bring the phone to the table, you know, read a book, <laughs> do, do something else that's not electronic. Well, they would toss their phones down and fight for a spot at the table. And that, that sort of put the, the light in, in my mind that, there was something more important here, which was there was a way to sort of restore really the best part of being a family. All everybody gathered around a table laughing and using their imagination, their creativity, their brain power, because, you know, you know, these board games can be thinky. And um, I was just sold that this was sort of an antidote to uh, sort of where our culture was going. Uh, with people babysitting their minds and not, you know, reading books or using their imagination or just interacting around a table. So I was hooked from that point, and I'm surrounded by board games right now, like a lot of people probably listening, because uh, I think they're special. So what pushed you to design your own board game? How did you go from player to designer? Um. I always had that inclination. So back in those Dungeon and Dragon days, I was always the dungeon master. I always would design the universe that my friends would travel in. Uh, so I had that inclination. But what, what truly motivated me is I started to accumulate games 
um, there were, you know, my, my wife in particular started getting pushed away because the dominant theme in our hobby is, if you think about it, is mythology, fantasy, space, and farming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I miss farming. Yeah. The farm, <laughs> you know, the sheep, the wheat, the, 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 that stuff appealed to, to my wife, and I wanted to make sure to keep it a family affair. But uh, there's only so much sheep and wheat and wood and Uwe Rosenberg. Manny's a great designer. I'm not knocking him, but there's only so much you can do with that before it gets a certain sameness. And I, I remember I, I had gotten Terra Mystica and I tried to get my wife to come to the table and just look at it. I wasn't even saying, hey, play a game. And I mean, just the notion of a swarmling or a giant totally turned her off. She didn't want anything to do with it. And she said, come on, let's finish wherever we were in watching the series Downton Abbey. She said, let's watch, let's watch some Downton Abbey. And so that's when the light bulb went off. And I said to myself, well, heck, I'll go find, I'll go find a game that that's British 19th century literature type game. And, and I really couldn't find a game to, to satisfy me. I found some games, but it seemed that every time whether it was Regency, Regency Romantic, or Victorian, or Edwardian, any, anything in that 125-year uh, stretch, it was always treated lightly, almost like a party game. And I, and I was very anti-party game. I liked crunchy games. And, and so I said, well, no one's really done a crunchy um, – I'll call it Victorian, but I would ask people to appreciate that I'm sort of referring to that full century plus of the, what I would call the aristocratic age from pre-industrial revolution through the industrial revolution to the, the decline of the aristocratic lifestyle in Edwardian times and beyond. And, and, and that whole period, because uh, uh, Heavy Cardboard did a podcast and there was a guest who was a, a Scottish gentleman named Tony. And he was upset that people were conflating Jane Austen and Downton Abbey. He says, you know, that, that's over, that's a hundred years. You can't do that. But I think you can. I'm not saying from a, from a, like your perspective, a true historian's perspective, but from the flavor, you know. Yeah, I in, will in, confess in, I will absolutely confess that I have both made Pride and Prejudice jokes while playing this game and pretended to be Dame Maggie Smith while playing this game. There's something <laughs> about it that really does kind of lead to that. <laughs> exactly. And it's, and it's interesting, too, because there's a, I don't know how deep we can get, but there's a historical theme of the, of the decline and fall of, of, you know, Pax Britannica. Of, of the Victorian age and of the domestic lifestyle and how, you know, I think people, I've had some people who have criticized me making a game about this period because it was a colonial power. There were very strict gender roles. There were, you know, a lot of things that people want to criticize me, of, of, you know, for, for making, 
But first of all, I, I don't believe in, in rewriting history. And secondly, I think they lose sight of where our affections lie in these stories and in the literature. With, you know, you're with Lizzie Bennett and Mary Thorne and David Copperfield and John Bates. You're with the underdog who's fighting against what would be perhaps the injustices of that historical period. And, and, and that's the, it's, it's a backdrop. What I like so much about it, quite honestly, is one word, propriety. The, the propriety of that era to me creates a tremendous backdrop for stories. You know, whether you're dealing with a crazy wife in the attic or whether you're dealing with a, a dishonorable uh, military man in, in Wickham, you're dealing with people, you know, there, there's, no, there's no propriety in breaking bad world, right? Everything goes, you know, you're, you're, you're only going to get death and destruction. But you can have something as what seems to the modern person as trivial as Lydia Bennett running away with George Wickham as being destructive to one to two families and, and how that all plays out as really deep drama. That's what attracts me to it. I know that's what attracts my wife, my daughter, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, you know, that, that, that there's that, that, era of literature is so rich because of that sense of propriety. So basically those social rules, even if we think that they are stupid in our modern time, create tension and drama because people both chafe against them just like anybody would and feel a lot of pressure to follow them. Is that about where you're at? Correct. Uh, correct. And I think some of the, I think some of the social rules were very silly. And I think, some of the sense of honor. Now, remember, honor goes only, it can only be contemporary to its time. But judging somebody's sense of honor, like if you want to look at, you know, Pride and Prejudice is about the, the, the prejudice of Darcy against his heart and, that, and the family of the Bennets. And the pride of, of Lizzie, who knows that she is a brilliant worthy person. And that goes against the mores of the time. But his sense of honor and how he pivots 180 degrees to embrace a new role of judging people on the content of their character, that's ageless. So one of the reasons I, I sort of balk at, at the rewriting of history is because th those historical actors, they didn't have any choice. Now, how they're measured and how they conducted themselves as far as what we know to be right and wrong in that historical period, that's that's fascinating to me. You know, that's where you see a Darcy change. You know, that's where um, I mean, this isn't even in that period. But like when I think of Schindler's List, you saw Oscar Schindler at the beginning being a mercenary trying to basically extort military profits and at the end giving everything he had to save people. Those types of changes and that sense of honor, that's what appeals to me in those settings. And forgive my cat meowing if she's getting recorded. That is Duchess Lilo at, at my feet right now, wanting food. I'm always in favor of cats. Uh, they are they are welcome <laughs> at all times. So you mentioned that you chose this theme in part for your wife, but it sounds like you yourself have spent a lot of time reading Victorian 
literature. So when did that start in your life and what are some of your favorites? Um, I will tell you that um, Victorian and really Regency, and and I know Regency really refers to just the, the period after King George was incompetent and there was a regent and that's a narrow time as opposed to the romantic periods. So that's probably more accurate. Um, the, those dramas got me to the books. Um, I am, I'm always read an enormous amount in my life. I used to, as a young nerd, keep a log and I'd, I'd read a hundred books in a year, but I tended to what our hobby tends to, which would be fantasy and science fiction and that things and some military history. But more as an adult, the dramas um, got me to read the books. Because so you mean like the BBC? It's not a neat, yeah, be, uh, we, you know, Masterpiece Theater is, is, a, is a mainstay in our house and anything, you know, whether it's Poldark or or, you know, Victoria or Mary, Dr. Thorne, whatever it was, when, when that stuff comes out, we consume it. And that, that brought me to the literature sort of in the reverse order, because I would say that uh, I wasn't probably mature enough as a teenager and somebody in their 20s to be um, happily strolling with Pride and Prejudice as the book and reading that. And, that, and that's not an easy read. They're, they're, you know, that's, that's, that's one where you have to um, pick up the ear, if you will. I remember when my wife and I used to go to the Shakespeare theater, it would be act two before my ear kicked in and I could actually understand what they were saying without having that sort of delay in my brain. And the same sort of thing when I, when I was reading Jane Austen, but I had a hunger to go, whether it would be Trollope or whether it be Austen or Dickens or you know, and, and read that and the Brontes and read that material. And, it, and I've always, I've always found literature, the reading to surpass drama on the screen um, with very few exceptions. And so that's why I'm very much drawn in that direction. So if I see some great piece that's written on something, boom, go get the book and read that. And so, so it's a little bit of a, inversion over my history of reading heavily as a kid. Um, I, I do read the literature, but I've only read it over the last 10 or 15 years. And, and favorites would be Jane Austen, without a doubt. Um, she's so, brilliant. Um, I, I very much like um, uh, Trollope. I mean, Dr. Thorne is a great, if, if you haven't read that one, um, I think that's great. Dickens, I like. So I actually think this is really funny because so the the reason I enjoy all this literature is because I was once a middle school girl who watched the BBC Pride and Prejudice series and saw Colin Firth, who at that point was like, Mr. Sexy, let's let's be real. So <laughs> I started <laughs> so I started reading all that stuff when I was a lot younger because you know that that was like the the romance that I enjoyed reading. And I actually also have spent a lot of time in my adult life reading kind of Regency romances. I love romance novels. And so, you know, a lot of this actually comes together for me from that direction. Have you, have you ventured into the world of Regency romance? 
Uh, not not outside of Jane Austen. Well, I highly recommend if you want to add a little spice to your reading diet. <laughs> so how, what kind of decisions went into bringing that literature, which you find so immersive to life in the form of a board game where you're actually participating instead of just absorbing? So the, when, when I investigated that genre and, and really found it wanting in, in, in board games, um, I, I conceived of a Trojan horse and the Trojan horse was um, to turn this idea of a party game being necessary to recruit new gamers. Cause I think there's always a little bit of evangelism and board gamers. They want, they, they see the magic of board games and they want other people to come play. And, and so my idea though, was not to get them to come play uh, something like just one or where words or something that's a party game, but something to get them to that next level of a crunchier game where they start to um, get a little deeper into a theme and they start get a little more complex and burning the brain power to figure out the game. And so I thought, I know so many people who are drawn to just to throw out some uh, dramas, you know, Downton Abbey, Pride and Prejudice, uh, Upstairs, Downstairs. Bridgerton wasn't around then, but when, when I was designing. But to the point is, there's a lot of people drawn to those period dramas. And if they see it in on a box, they would come to the box and then find inside the Trojan horse some complexity that was not part of any of the other treatments of this topic that I could find. And so that was my concept. It was a little bait and switch. <laughs> bait them with the, the, the period drama and switch it over into a bit of a crunchy Euro. And that that really is sort of a oxymoron to have a crunchy gateway game. But that, that was sort of my play. And so to me, everything had to be the theme. It it couldn't be pasted on. That's That's not going to get somebody hooked, if you will, it had to be enough to make it immersive. It had to, everything about the game had to be tied back to the theme. And so that was my objective. You know, I did a lot of homework. I went back to school a little bit. I studied, you know, manor houses of the period, what kind of rooms they had. I documented all the rooms, the kind of servants. I read up on the servants' life. I got Isabella Beeston, who has written about what they eat. <laughs> and so I was doing a lot of homework to try to immerse myself in um, in the theme. And then as I developed the game, everything had to have a thematic explanation. And if it didn't have a thematic explanation, if it was just mechanically put in there to make something work, I, I cut it out. I, I got rid of it. So that was the, and, and, and understand something. I had no pretensions. I mean, I was nobody, I am nobody, but I mean, I, I, I was just going to make this for chuckles, you know, I was just going to, I had no idea that it would sell to people. Um, and then when I had the idea that maybe I could do a Kickstarter and get some traction, I figure, you know, you sell a couple hundred copies and you had a fun experience and you move on. Well, it was 
despite being spectacularly ugly in its first rendition, it still appealed to people. And it was spectacularly ugly because I may have a Victorian uh, interest as far as history, but I don't have a sense of Victorian style. <laughs> and I had to be dragged kicking and screaming in my first Kickstarter to sort of give a facelift to the look so that it was more in line with uh, with something of uh, where style was so important. But that's generally the, the notion I had was to make a theme-first game and then try to attach it to crunchy mechanics. So you talked about doing your homework and going back to school. Um, if somebody wants to take a similar path, what are some starter books for them to acquire to begin digging more deeply into this history, into this background? Well, you know, I, I have a couple of books. The, the real work is done just on the internet. There's an amazing amount of uh, British material on the manor houses and on that period of time. So you can go and, and take any particular um, manor house that you're interested in, and you're going to find a website dedicated to it, a society that supports its preservation, historical mirror uh, images, historical material attached to that. Uh, for example, on the upstairs downstairs box, I found the photographer who went to what I call Alderley Hall, which is the main box image. Um, and he photographed that for the, uh, as an assignment by the historical society that was preserving that manor house. And I got permission to use his images in the kitchen, is from the kitchen inside um, Audley End, which is the name of the actual manor. And that's what's on the cover of Upstairs, Downstairs. So I reached out to people like that. There's books like um, Life Below Stairs, which is uh, True Lives of, of Servants, which I found. There's uh, there's the Isabella Beeston book. She deals with domestics, and it's written in 1861, which is the perfect time frame. Uh, but I would say most of it was spent um, just going to those historical societies in Great Britain and looking at what they had preserved and studying that way. But I do have to, I do have to interject here. So when I did my initial Kickstarter, um, set aside the graphic design issues that I had to work through, the fidelity of the Victorian content was probably um, very good for uh, a layman, but it wasn't up to historical standards by a long shot. I had a lot of problems with some of the assumptions and some of the information I put in there. And I ran into, during the first Kickstarter, a gentleman named David Buckland, who happened to be an editor of those very romances that you like. <laughs> he is an ed editor of, of romantic period novels and of Victorian literature being written today. And he, perfect British gentleman, uh, incongruously living in Singapore. So I, I, I corresponded with him in Singapore. He was in Singapore, but he was this editor of Victorian literature, if you will. And he very politely just pointed out that I had made an error in a couple places when he saw some of my material. And I immediately just reached out and said, wow. I said, would you, would you mind 
lending me a little bit of your knowledge. This gentleman critiqued everything that I put into writing. And if it were not for him, and there were a couple of other very generous Brits, Guy Allen is one of them, Martin Joins, that that jumped in and, and offered their assistance as well. If it wasn't for that very friendly community of, uh, of gamers from across the pond, I, the obsession would have fallen flat because it just would not have uh, measured up to the historical standards. And I'll give you an example. If you take a look at the family members, um, I should probably grab, well, I won't do it. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that as a homework assignment. But if you look at the family members for like uh, family Wessex, you will find that the son, the daughter, and the parents all have different last names. Something as simple as that, where the, the Earl or the Viscount is taking the name of the estate, his son is taking the family name, and the daughter takes another name. And I, I get that all explained in detail by this by David Buckland in particular. That I, that's high level stuff that I never would have been able to find. I didn't find when I did my research. No one got into that sort of depth. And you could go into the the geography of Derbyshire, um, the different locations, the Peak District. And, and areas in there so that you could add context that would be uh, not only thematic, but it would it would resonate with the people who are living in that area right now. And the truest testament to the help that I got from those folks generously. And no one said, hey, you know, send me a check. You know, I loaded them up with games. I gave them credit. And I, I gave them my undying gratitude and I would have gone further, but they just said, no, we just want this idea, which we truly love to measure up. And the fact that there's several, uh, several hundred copies in England now, and no one has ever found fault or flaw with anything that ultimately emerged as the game is to their credit, not mine. I laid a lot of groundwork, but they actually built a lot of the theme that I would have been unable to build even with heavy research. That is so cool. And I actually want to go back to one more part of your research. So you enlisted the help of a photographer who was photographing old manor houses. You also have photographs to represent the different gentry that you can put into your hand uh, for the game. What inspired you to use real photographs? Where do those come from? The hardest, let me rephrase it, the, the most difficult thing facing anybody who wants to design a game that they're serious about, not something that they're just dabbling in, is art. Art is exceptionally expensive and it's exceptionally important. Uh, I've, I've got three self-published novels and just my cover art was $600 per image for, for those three books. Ooh. Think about that. If you've got 70 cards, just because it's a little bit smaller, um, you know, it, the, that, is a, that is a barrier that really stands between anybody, in particular anybody who's got a fantasy concept where you, don't, you can't draw from reality at all. You can't use your 
Adobe or Photoshop, you know, InDesign skills to go ahead and and uh, antique things or do whatever. You've got to basically have original artwork. Um, so I was confronted with a problem, which was how do I get artwork into Obsession on a shoestring budget of zero <laughs> of out of my pocket? <laughs> and uh, I happened to have worked um, oh many, many, many years ago um, in, in in conjunction with uh, a company that worked uh, that worked with the patent office with issuing patents. And and I did know that 19th century materials, uh, in particular photographs, are public domain. So the light bulb went off and I said to myself, I wonder what kind of quality public domain photographs of real 19th century people are out there. And the answer is a lot. Um, There is back in that is now originally I wanted a Regency game where I wanted a, a romantic period game, 1830s, 1820s. Yeah. And there's no there's no camera work back then. So I switched to 1860s, which is just shortly into the photographic period after I think you call it a, a, a derogatype, daguerreotype. I can never pronounce it. But if you've <laughs> ever looked at an old photo and seen this sort of sepia toned frame around somebody looking into the camera was sort of a maniacal look <laughs> that probably <laughs> probably fed into the Victorian macabre type of uh, type of uh, genre that's out there. But anyway, those were from like 1850, I think. And once you once you get into the 1860s and beyond, there is a whole host of folks, all of which I would capture the ones that were in the best condition, and I would retouch them and try to improve them. And the names are not the people of that time, but those are all real people. And they're all, uh, you know, just retouched and then put in a frame. So it turned out to be me at a loss of how to get art into the game, stumbling upon a really cool sort of preserve, historically preservative moment where I've captured, you know, 130, 140, if you total up all the cards, people who were alive in the 19th century and, <laughs> and put them in, put them on cards. So it, it, it was uh, it was a bit of a serendipity that that happened. Nice. And I, I love that you mentioned that you are also a writer. Um, I was wondering about that because I can tell that you really enjoyed writing the little descriptions of everyone, like their little bios on the cards and also the general story. Um, is that something that you intended to do from the beginning? Is it a natural part of your creative process? Do you have any favorite characters that you created among the cards? Um, I, I do. I'm, I'm going to, even though I know you didn't intend it, I'm going to read between the lines because the, the nice part about having a, a, a little bit of a creative, creative writing streak uh, has a bad side, which is in writing rule books that are short, brief, and clear. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that I know that is the albatross that I carry. And uh, future games, I will be finding those very precise technical writers to help me out. But I, I was on my own, and naturally, that's why I generated 42 pages of rule books for one game. 
um, just the base game uh, with the with the glossary. Uh, but yes, I, I do. Again, that was all theme. Uh, I felt that the flavor texts were important for theme. Um, I, I I enjoy a well executed theme, and I I get a little frustrated at theme that's just pasted on. Um, I, I feel like that's sort of copping out, you know. And it's not always easy, but it's I think possible. It's interesting how mechanics sort of sort of organically make themselves known when you're when you're sort of narrowly focused on theme and and that um and so the the flavor text was theme and what what became the driving force of what those flavor texts were is that I had to in my mind for that credibility I was describing as far as coherence thematic coherence link the flavor text to the favor so I wanted all flavor text to have some connection to the favor. So for example, if if you had a, a pounds favor, you had a money favor, um, a lot of people think that somebody comes to the bowling green and you have a game of bowls and money changes hands. That's not the context of a pounds favor. And I go through great pains to indicate that all the favors they're not concurrent with the activity and they flow from your acquaintance and the type of person that you're bringing into your social circle. So if someone has a pound favor, I link that to either political influence or more commonly travel, mm-hmm. uh, having an awareness of international affairs, because the way that um, aristocrats made their money, they had rents for the land that they owned. And then they had usually a money man- manager or business manager that would, you know, do what any business manager would do, would put their money to work. It was something they typically didn't get in the weeds themselves. They dealt with it at 30,000 feet. But if the business manager wanted to invest in the tea trade, you know, that'd be recommended and maybe that's where the money would go. And and so that pound favor would be linked to the flavor text because that person spent, you know, several years in Delhi and has returned back to Derbyshire, which is where he grew up. And you, you had him over in the drawing room. And what did you discuss? Well, what was it like in Delhi? And that, that might lead to some things that would lead to investments. Or if you had, for example, a reputation favor, it would be somebody who had the reputation chops to actually reflect well on your house. If you have, you know, my, one of my favorite guys, you ask who my favorite guys, uh, Albert Plantagenet is one. <laughs> it's a great pitcher. He's, he's a distant relative of the Plantagenets. And in the flavor text, it says that he won't hesitate to tell you that. <laughs> and he brings reputation. So remember you're, you're sort of scratching and clawing your way up from a really rough stretch where the, the manor house that you live in has fallen into disrepair. The most common thing they had to do was they had to shut off a portion of the manor house because to keep candles lit, to keep fires burning, to, to keep domestic staff, to keep it clean, 
it was too overwhelming if you were impoverished. And so you basically would shrink your livable space in your manor house. So the notion of a Plantagenet coming coming and visiting your new drawing room that you just opened up after it's been boarded up for 27 years because you can't afford to keep that space warm and, and clean, and a Plantagenet comes and sits there for an afternoon, that's meaningful in in that sort of rural area of aristocratic London, right? Or aristocratic Britain, right? And so that brings reputation that that spreads by word of mouth, usually through the domestics, but also through the gentry themselves. And that that's why there is a reputation favor linked to certain people might might be somebody who is has a certain rank. If you have a Marquess come to your house and you're scratching your way up to get back into relevance and Derbyshire society, then that that means a lot. And the same thing would be for invitations. Those would be the gadflies, the social butterflies, and it usually references that. So all the flavor text was, is, is in, intended to link to the favor in order to, um, in order to convey that. And on the back page of the Obsession Rulebook, I break down how I try to do that because I think that makes it more than just something I made up out of my head, which I didn't make up out of my head, but at least it's connected to the favor. Fair enough. So I want to talk about who gets flavor text and who gets an image in this game. So, you know, you are playing, you know, a house that's kind of down their luck trying to rebuild, but you're essentially an aristocratic person. And the people who are in your hand who get funny flavor text are also people who are either aristocratic or rich, you know, the American heiress, for example. Um, but your workers, the game is really driven by the service staff. And, you know, I, I guess I was wondering, do you wish that you had personalized them more? You know, what led to the decision to kind of break between fancy people and not in that particular way? The, the first design prototypes had both. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a card on card type of mechanic. It was actually a, a small tile on card, but there was an image and there was there was a, a very small amount of flavor text. It it was cumbersome, um, and and I have a certain affection for the the meeple part of a Euro game, and I wanted to sort of capture the flavor there. Um, I think I take gratification from. I mean, let's face it. Um, you and I probably both would say if we had to pick a class, not a class, a group of people in Downton Abbey that we liked, either the servants or the Granthams, we'd pick the servants. That that's where that's where our hearts and our our sympathies, uh, at least mine, were attached to. So I, I'm very much, uh, as everybody who's listened to my videos knows, service is my favorite part of the game. And I think I take satisfaction from the fact that you mismanage service in this game, you will get smoked. Managing the service, building a service engine, while it's impersonal, it at least acknowledges the fact that without service, your estate is staying uh, in the doldrums. And yeah, I guess I guess I could have done that. It had a mecha- it, it had a clunky feel to me. 
going mm-hmm. card on card and and I wanted sort of a tactile component too in the way of meeples. And I think once you go to a meeple, you lose a little bit of the ability to personalize a meeple. So I tried to do it with the shape and with how they were essential. Yeah, I mean, the truth is, ain't nothing getting done in this game without the correct staff. <laughs> yep, yep. And you will find, you know, if you say, I'm, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make a run without a foot, without a second footman for this game. You'll lose. I mean, I, I mean, foot. I, I have personally never done that and done well. Maybe I've got one win, but I've played thousands of these games, and most people haven't played that many. I mean, there's just, there's just got to be a real ear for what you need, what your gentry deck looks like, and getting that service, getting that service mix just right. So obsession is a bit of an obsession for you. This is still your first published game and you're entering the third printing. Is that correct? I am. Uh, just, just started last month. Fortunately, the geopolitical environment and the, the last fun year and a half we've had has made everything from manufacturing to transoceanic shipping a nightmare. So everything's a lot slower than I would have liked, but uh, yeah, I did sell. So I had my first printing was 1,850 copies of the base game. And then I um, renovated the game from what I learned. That was my first effort and added the upstairs, downstairs expansion. And two years after the first Kickstarter, I did the second Kickstarter and I printed 5,000 of the base game and the, and the expansions and I'm doing another 5,000 in this printing. Wow. And so are you ever planning to make another game? And if you do, is it going to be on this theme? Uh, I am. I do. And I, in fact, over Memorial Day, I spent um, playing a prototype over at the barbecue I was at <laughs> of, of a game. Um, and I do have different titles with different genres. I have a space game that's in development. The biggest hurdle is, uh, and we talked off mic about what I do for a living. So what I do for a living during the day is um, I, I'm involved with artificial hearts and artificial lungs. And so I'm, I'm in hospitals most days. And it's pretty demanding, but I'm retiring from that in less than a year. And then once I'm once I do that, then I, I will have the freedom to branch out and tackle some of the bigger projects. I got a smaller project I hope to kickstart maybe by the end of the year. We'll see. Um a card game, a trick taking game. But um as far as a bigger title, uh it, it's gonna it's gonna require a little bit of dedicated effort because I started in twenty 15 with obsession in 2014 i'm sorry 2014 i started with my first prototype and it kick-started in 2017 and i can't spend three years in a title but when i'm doing a part-time i didn't have much choice right so when i retire i'll be able to dedicate i won't really retire i'll just go to a new career of, of k into games and i'll be able to dedicate my energies and having made every possible mistake I can make in game development and crowdfunding, I will do it more efficiently <laughs> the next time around when I develop a new title. But it's it's been it's been all good. I mean, but boy, 
do I owe a debt of gratitude to our people in our hobby who were uh, very supportive of the project? Yeah, that's actually one thing that makes Obsession, I think, unique among games. So not, as it, not only is it thematically different, but it is very rare. And I think that's actually a bad thing in some ways to see someone really come back to the same game and make improvements, make changes, make the game better, and then reprint it. So how did you learn how to take all that feedback? And then what did you learn from that process? Well, um, you got to swallow your pride. You know, initially, I think the fact that I, I fully recognize that my first Kickstarter was a bit of a humble project. My my goal was just to to get it funded at thirty six thousand, which was my funding level. And so I, I didn't have I didn't I wasn't uh, overly optimistic about it being a significant game. It was just a project I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But when I got the first criticism, and I mean, some of the criticism is, you know, when you're dealing in the online world can, 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 might not be too tender. <laughs> it can be pretty rough. And I remember, you know, stewing for a day. And then I said, what are you an idiot? What they're saying happens to be right. Um, you have people who, despite their concerns about the project, are engaging you, well, listen to them. And, uh, you know, it, it, I had some harsh critics who came out and said, this is wrong, this is wrong, this looks incorrect, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And I reached out to them and I said, would you help me make it better? And they, they flipped 180 degrees and graciously gave me every minute of time that I could ask for. So it's an amazing resource, and I th- I don't know the designer world at all. I don't I don't know any other game designers, um, so I don't know how they do it. I'm sure they have teams, and they don't do it part time in in their home office. But the the resource that are the people who play the games is really pretty spectacular, and I mean at an expert level. I pointed out David Buckland, who was a Victorian editor who gravitated to the project. There's that kind of expertise in every area. I mean, let I, 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 have, I have an idea for a game about Iceland. I went to Iceland with my daughter. And I, if I needed some expertise in the area of Iceland, I, I've already found somebody. There were two people from Iceland that kickstarted my first game and I had a conversation with them. And oh, yeah, we're happy to help you. So it's a uh-huh. great, it was a great resource. And I just, I, you know, it's a little tough because if you ask opinions of a hundred people, you're not going to get a consensus. So you have, you're going to disappoint some people. If you use your judgment to go in one direction and not another, which you're going to have to do, or you're going to have AP. So it's a little bit of a delicate path to sort of navigate. But I think if you're just very honest out of the gate that, you know, that's a reality and I'm not going to do that for this reason, but I'm going to do that. Thank you. That's fantastic. And it was what it taught me is that I did play testing in a very insular group with the first edition of Obsession, the first design. And it taught mm-hmm. me the value of doing play testing in an enormous group before you approach a Kickstarter. I didn't know any different. That might be blocking and tackling 101 
for game designers to, I'm sure Vital Lacerda play tested on Mars with 500 people. You know, I didn't have that luxury or that knowledge, um, but now I do. And boy, that will, the great thing is that now that I have a, uh, a great relationship with Panda games, they'll make my prototypes in order to make the play test experience uh, attractive. You don't mm-hmm. want to send things that looks like you did arts and crafts in your office and have people judging an incomplete copy. So I'll be able to do very nice prototypes and be able to play test things more robustly than I did. That's the reason there's differences between the first edition and second edition is my true play testing fell in between those two publication dates. There's hardly any changes between the second and third, almost none. I corrected a couple grammatical errors and one or two component errors, and then clarified some of my voluminous rules. But that that's it. The, the gameplay is identical. Interesting. And so just a, just a softy question here at the end. What are you playing now that you and your family are really enjoying? I just played um, Era Medieval Age, and and we're on a little we're on a little strong play of that. Um, I don't know if you know it. It's 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 like a pegboard where you build a medieval castle, um, a dice drafting game. Very clever. Um, I just got my Terraforming Mars big box. My lord, is that a giant box? I love Terraforming Mars. And uh, my son, who is an engineer, had 3D printed a lot of the stuff that they've now put in there. They've done it much nicer. So uh, we've got that up and going. And I'm looking behind me at what I've been playing a little London, um, which is a a nice card game that's right in the era that that we're talking about. Can I ask a favor? Yeah. I want to mention one thing that I think would be important to put out there as it relates to the design of, of obsession, because um, there is a, there is a mentality amongst a large group of gamers that randomness is bad. It's, it's understandable. No one wants to work at something and have a, 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 a dice roll wipe out, all their very good tactical planning, but it's, it really is something that has gone too far because randomness introduces into games uh, raw materials for stories. And, and the reason that, you know, I've had some people be very critical of blind card draws and obsession, or they've been very critical of the difficulty of certain objectives uh, things of that nature. And I'm fine. You know, I, I learned from that first Kickstarter experience. You, there's a big group out there. You're, not everybody's going to be happy with your design and that's fine. But the randomness is in obsession because there, there has to be a mechanical way, in my opinion, to capture Victorian fate. If you think about the British literature that we love, it is all about stunning revelations, things that come out of left field. You have, like I said, a, a wife in the attic. You have, you have, you know, Wickham is who he is, or you, you know, all these, all these revelations. Because of that sense of propriety, it makes for a great backdrop for shock. 
and for what people are going to do about it. So that blind card draw is a story. When you get the American heiress, a story comes into your hand, right? You 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 look at the American heiress, you you know, you make a joke <laughs> about the American heiress. Yeah, you got an American, you know, it that that's a story. When you pull a cad, or you asked about another favorite card of mine from upstairs downstairs, the curmudgeon. You pulled the curmudgeon or whatever. You're you're getting stories. I designed the game not for people to win. There's an endless number of games that people can go apply their Bobby Fisher chess skills and grind out a victory through their mental superiority. And I tell you what, they'd, they'd smoke me in a heartbeat, but that's not what obsession is about. And I couldn't, you know, you've got Vital Lucerta, you've got, you've got you know, Fister, you've got people that can give you that. What I'm trying to do with the Trojan horse is two things is the outside of the horse has got that theme and the inside of the horse is a crunchy Euro that the best player can't necessarily win because the number one objection I've had in recruiting and evangelizing board gamers to the table in my family, extended family and friends, I don't want to play you. You've memorized rules for the 75 games sitting in your office. What, why do I want to be your punching bag? I'm going to sit down and I'm going to be trying to figure out how to move my pawn and you're going to already have found uh, the pathway to victory. I don't want to be your punching bag. And so obsession is intended to be a story with an unpredictable outcome. And I have just as much fun losing obsession as I have winning obsession. And it doesn't mean we don't try to win. That's the magic of it. You try to overcome the fact that you have seven guys in your gentry deck in the first two seasons. And what, what am I going to do about that? First of all, you got a funny story. <laughs> you got a, you got a, you got a weird Rolodex, but now you got to figure out what to do with it. Okay. Maybe I'm, I'm going to get after the cricket field and the smoking room and I'm going to hire that extra valid and, and, and something comes out of that. So I fully understand that 90% of gamers are going to probably be turned off by a Victorian theme. All good. I, I dislike Gloomhaven intensely. We all have our preferences about great designs or any design, but the nature of this, I have no sympathy if your goal is you're frustrated that you can't win <laughs> because that's not the design. The design is not for the best tactical or strategic player to win. The, the goal of that is evangelism. It's board game evangelism. And I get emails every, I don't want to say every day, but three, four, five a week to testify to that. X person who never played board games now loves this game and wants to play it. And she beats me every time, or he beats me every time. And it's great because we're playing games together. So that's just a bit of clarification. You can edit that or chop it out as you see fit. But I don't pretend to be, like I said, a Vital Lacerda. There's people who can make your crunchy games that, that, that you, you hunger for. This is about a theme and an uncertain outcome. And that's the design intent. Now, you know what? I'm going to leave it right there. And speaking of getting a lot of emails, what is the best way to contact you? 
email. My Lord, um, you've got Instagram, you've got Facebook, you've got Kickstarter email, you've got you've got um, Twitter. It's so difficult when all these messages come from all these sources. If you email me at Halligan at kentapublishing.com, um, that's a long stretch there. Maybe you can put it in the notes. I will. Uh, that would be the best. That's the best way to get a hold of me. For anyone who's asking, uh, I expect late August, early September, that the games will arrive uh, in Europe and the continental U.S. And uh, that's when we should be back in business as it relates to new copies of Obsession. Excellent. And I, of course, can be reached anywhere as Beyond Solitaire. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. This has been, a, it's just been so fun to talk to you about a game that I really enjoy. Wonderful to be on. I appreciate it. And I'm glad you enjoy the game. Thanks, everybody. Leave a comment. And most of all, happy gaming. <laughs>